Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 10, The Girl Who Defied Expectations. I am grateful to have Nicole Burgess with me today as my guest. Nicole is a clinically trained, soul-led leadership coach for ambitious, highly sensitive professional women leaders. She is also the host of Soul-Filled Sisterhood Podcast and the founder of the Self-Care Summit, Improve Your Bottom Line and Your Personal Life. Over the last 17 years, Nicole has coached, guided, and collaborated with over a thousand women. She helps women end overwhelm and self-doubt so they can lead with calm, confidence, and connection. So as is our way on the Not Work Storytelling Podcast, we're going to begin with a story and let it speak for itself. And then I'm going to dive into conversation with my guest, with Nicole. This story is actually pulled from the Irish Folklore Collection. It's a, it's a story that was written down in 1937 or 1938. And I've added my own framing to it and my own unique flavor. We'll talk a little bit more about where my additions are, but let's begin with the story and then we'll see where it takes us. John Joe McLaughlin sat with his daughter, Annie, and as he did when a story gathered in his throat, he prepared himself to speak it aloud. Often, these two would sit by the cottage fireside in silence. It was as if they were making space for the absent voices, hoping they could find a way to once again fill the still air. Annie's hands would always be busy with something, even if her lips never moved. Since she had learned needlework in school, she spent her nights squinting in the lamplight, trying to repair a pocket on her father's shirt or keep her own stockings through another season. She had learned silence from the years of mourning beside her father. Her mother was gone, her siblings too. Though few would know it when they met John Joe, the small farmer who left school before he was 11, he was a man who relied on stories to get him through the wet nights of winter and to help him pass the long summer days. You might say that John Joe preferred stories to the truth, seeing as he told Annie that her mother had run off with the weavers, even though she knew full well that her mother had laid in a coffin in that very room when she was still too young to take communion bread. Though you could say he used stories to transform the truth, John Joe's tales were always rooted in something beyond his imagination, be it the dusting of news he heard at the market or in the deep bedrock of the oldest tales. He'd heard of a place called Round Tower in Kilcar, where they wove blankets fit for kings and queens. He rather liked the idea of his wife using the skills she'd learned at home from her own ma and da and weaving carpets for the likes of Buckingham Palace. Perhaps it was strange that he'd find comfort in imagining his wife had up and left himself and his daughter to beautify some royal throne room. But it pleased him to think of her looking up at the same blue sky on a prize August day when the harvest was ready and everyone's belly was full. He had no comfort when he visited the plots in the churchyard, after all. John Joe was about to tell Annie a story 
and she did her best to commit every detail to memory. With her impeccable handwriting, she was the star pupil at St. Mary's National School when it came to recording the oral histories for the school's folklore collection. Knowing this, John Joe cleared his throat and began. Fado, Fado, there was a widow woman who had only one daughter. She had lost her husband and four other children to a terrible plague that weakened the chest and stole the breath. This girl had been terribly ill, but somehow the weeping mother's prayers were answered and just one child was saved. If this one surviving daughter wondered why she lived and not her brave eldest brother nor her sturdy, sweet-faced youngest brother— not her clever oldest sister who could do all the sums in her head, nor the next sister after that who had such a way with the spinning and weaving. She never spoke her questions aloud. This girl had always been known as the quiet sister, the meek sister, the sister who would go off to the nuns if they would have her. Now that they were all alone, the widow could not bear to pack her last child off to the convent. It wasn't just because this lonely, overburdened woman decided she needed help on the farm. No, instead of asking this one remaining child to have the spirit and do the work of five, the mother let her sit on a stool with a soft cushion and sing sweet songs and think gentle thoughts the whole day through. But one day, the woman of the house, a falling down, cold house that it was, could bear no more. She'd been praying for every moment since her family had fallen ill, and she'd been praying for her entire life before that. But it seemed that none of her prayers would be answered. The hens wouldn't lay, the turf wouldn't dry, and she could never discern the reason why this puny child, out of her fair, strong brood, would be the one to live on, useless and mild. Without a care for how she would regret it later, the woman raised her hand to her daughter. She was driven half mad with the need to see the wisp of a girl knocked off her smug little stool. The girl's thin voice raised to a wail. She knew her mother's muted rages and stony grief, but she'd never felt the sting of her open palm. As it happened, the king's son was passing by their meager cottage at just that instant. Whether he was a true-hearted sort, pledged to the defense of the defenseless, or just looking for a break in the monotonous gray day, it's hard to say. Either way, he took it upon himself to pull the weeping woman from her daughter's hunched form. Immediately recognizing her guest as a man of quality, what with the white horse and the fine velvet jacket, the woman smoothed back her hair, straightened her spine, and improvised a story. Oh, this girl of mine, she's killing herself working, and she will not stop for me. The prince thought this was a strange enough punishment for being too useful but he supposed that every unhappy family is unhappy in their own way. And he was actually looking for a hardworking woman himself. His mother, you see, had a terrible time with keeping help in the castle. Perhaps it was that she was too exacting and impossible to please. Perhaps the pay was worse than the working conditions. Perhaps it was the queen's sharp tongue. The prince didn't bother to mention wages or duties to this mother with the problematic workaholic daughter but he trusted that a royal grin would be more than enough, and it was. He told the woman that he would take the girl to see if her hard work would please the queen, and if his mother liked her well enough, perhaps he would even take her as his bride. 
Now, no one asked the girl what she wanted because it was assumed that the castle was always preferable to the cottage. The girl was happy enough for a change, and she rather hated sitting on that stool and being told she was precious and useless, even as she knew she was resented for that uselessness. The prince didn't say much after he pulled her onto the horse behind him, but the girl wouldn't have known what to say in return. So she simply took in the marvel of the changing scenery until the royal compound finally came into view. The prince left her in the courtyard as he went off to tell his mother about his remarkable find, a remarkably useful girl. The girl did not see her potential husband again, but the queen came bustling down, setting her up in a lonely room with a bale of wool that reached from the floor to ceiling. The queen never even asked the girl's name. She simply gestured to the two wool carters that sat upon yet another stool, though this one lacked the lovely soft cushion, and indicated that the girl was to sit and to comb all the fibers in the chamber. Now, after some time, there was a knock at the door. A woman with great big hands stood waiting at the threshold. Without a bit of preamble, the visitor said, I'll card the wool for you if you'll ask me to your wedding. The girl didn't bother to protest that she had no real plans to be married, and she desperately needed the help, so she simply accepted with an open heart. This woman had hands like oak, gnarled and just as strong. As she worked, the woman told the young girl, who had no tools and had to simply sit on the stool, just as useless as ever, that she had been married to a terrible man who made her card wool from dusk till dawn. Her hands had grown monstrous over the years, but her heart had not, so she still found the energy to offer up her help to another woman in need. As the sun began to sink, the oak-handed woman declared that she had to be getting back for her night shift in the home of her horrible husband. A few moments later, the queen appeared, and she was simply delighted to see the work the girl had done. Getting all the credit for being so industrious, the girl was invited to dinner, but she had to sit upon a tiny stool at the corner, far from the royal table. Though she was quiet and not very good with her hands, this girl had the sense to sigh at yet another stunted stool. She was growing rather tired of being put in the corner and told to sit still. Our girl passed the night comfortably enough. She was in despair when, the next morning, she was brought back to the same room and instructed to spin all the wool she had carted the day before. She did not dare believe that the big-handed woman would come and rescue her again, seeing as she had worked all day and then all night. But sure enough, the girl heard a thump at the door. At the threshold, there stood another woman, this one with a foot as long and wide as an overturned butter churn. Again, I'll do the spinning for you if you'll ask me to your wedding, said the stranger. Surely, cried the girl, filled with gratitude. The second woman's story was much the same as the first. She had a terrible husband who would keep her spinning all night long, and her foot had grown from strong to monstrous over the years. Like the oak-handed lady from the day before, this visitor believed in sisterhood and wouldn't let her own sad tale keep her from being of use. So she worked all day until the wool was all spun fine. Just as had happened as the sun got low on the evening before, the woman with the butter-churned foot finished her task and slipped out the door just before the queen appeared. The queen was pleasantly surprised, and the girl was once again spared the lash of the woman's wicked tongue. The invitation to dinner was extended again, 
But this time, the stool was moved to the end of the table amongst the lesser lords and ladies. No one had much to say to this young visitor, but she felt welcome enough to sit quietly and eat her fill. Now on the third day, there was one more task to complete. This time, the queen led the girl to the work chamber and gestured to the great loom. Not daring to believe that help would come a third time, the girl collapsed onto the stool in tears the moment she was left alone. But despite her lack of faith, there was soon a sound at the door, and there stood a woman with an enormously large nose. Just as the others had done, she entered the room with a singular offer. I'll do the weaving for you if you'll ask me to your wedding. Oh, heavens, yes, said the girl who took her spot on the same old stool. The visitor wove all the cloth, and as she did so, she told the story of her terrible husband who forced her to weave all night long. She looked dolefully to her enormous nose the size of a potato that could feed a full-grown man. She blamed the constant habit of stooping down over her work for that enormous nose of hers. But she didn't spare another word of lament for herself as she gave her day to help this hapless girl. Just as before, the woman with the terrible potato nose vanished as soon as her work was done. The queen waltzed in and was overjoyed that her son had brought her such a remarkable, industrious girl. They barely exchanged a word in the swirl of wedding preparations, and the girl was often set on a stool in the corner as the queen and the women of the household fussed over the making of a princess. When the wedding day arrived, the bride's side of the chapel was woefully empty just the widow sitting there, feeling more alone than ever. But then, just before the bride began her walk down the aisle, three women came thumping into the church. Oak-gnarled hands, butter-churned foot, potato nose, and all. It was as if there was an enchantment over the congregation, as no one spoke a word or made a move to eject them in all their plain and terrible glory. The ceremony went on without a hitch, and the once useless girl who was ever relegated to the stool in the corner was now destined to hold a seat at the highest table for the rest of her days. When they were settled at the high table for the wedding feast, the prince leaned in and gestured to the three strange women at the far table. Are they friends of yours? The princess had to admit they were. The prince stood quickly and made his way toward the lowliest guests. The princess, panicked as much as she had when faced with the wool in the work chamber, sure that her luck had finally run out. But the prince did not send the strange women from the hall. Instead, he sat down beside them and started to talk with them. Each of the women told the prince their story of injustice and abuse. He saw them, even through their deformities, for all that they were and all that they could be. When the king's son heard this story, he touched the nearest lady on the shoulder and declared for all at the wedding party to hear, Indeed, I'll never put my wife to any of these jobs, not after she has proved she has so much to give and I understand how much she has to lose. John Joe looked at his daughter with a rare glint in his eye and said, And so, that useless girl lived happily ever after. The man looked at his daughter for a long time. Tell me, my dear, what kind of girl will you grow up to be, I wonder? Now, Annie wasn't accustomed to being asked what she wanted to be. It was Ireland in the 1930s. There didn't seem to be anyone in rural Donegal who dared imagine much more than the next saint's day. She looked down at her darning and tried to make the very next stitch perfect. But then 
Annie straightened and looked at the glowing peat and then to her father. I haven't decided yet, father, but I can promise you I won't spend my life on a stool waiting for it to happen. In that moment, Annie realized that her father was proud of her, his only living child. But she would not share that part in the composition book on Monday when she was recording this story for the project in the schools. This part was hers to know, just as her destiny was hers to find out. So, Nicole, thank you for sitting with me for this story. I knew I wanted to have you on the podcast because I so respect you as a podcaster. And I know that we have a common connection through Ireland. Whenever you post work from John O'Donohue, I always just feel that little lift in my soul. And also because you are a weaver and Mm -hmm. you make such beautiful fiber art. And so I want to explore all the nooks and crannies of this strange and beautiful story. What does this say to you? You know, it's, it's, there's so many nuggets, I think, within this story of just going from like the girl who seemed to like either lost her voice, didn't think she had a voice. And it's like, you gotta say what you need. And the mom who thought like, oh, I'm going to sit her over on the stool because of this. And then she resented her. It's like, you did this and you don't know what she's capable of. And maybe she is not strong enough to do the hard labor, but I'm sure there's other things she could actually provide. And then when it got into these mystical other women who were coming in basically to I'm like, Ooh, universe provides right there. They just step in and do the work. I loved it because it's going from the very start to the end. And I think to me, there's it then states the appreciation of from carding it, then spinning it, and then actually making cloth out of it the process itself and how we have forgotten it because we don't see the stuff like that anymore. And there's such craftsmanship to that. Yeah. It's the bringing those lost arts back to the forefront because they still totally exist. Yeah. What struck me in this story was all the contradictions of useful and uselessness. Yes. And also the way in which, you know, there's been such a beautiful reclaiming of handwork and, you know, Mm -hmm. being so inspired when you share your work and saying like, that must have taken so much time and Mm -hmm. effort to build your skill and that, you know, you work with such empowered, ambitious women Mm -hmm. and you also use your power and your ambition to create something beautiful that can be enjoyed on the small domestic sphere. Mm Mm-hmm. It's one of those magical and very difficult contradictions of 2022 when we're both at that sense of let's reclaim this and make it art and knowing the foremothers would have been absolutely enslaved to the loom and to the whole process as the three women were Mm -hmm. and how we're constantly being asked to elevate this sort of work, but also that's just simple handiwork. Like we're being called in both the different directions. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's something about, I don't know, is there a warp and a weft kind of metaphor of being pulled in different directions in here? 
Well, and I mean, you've just named it because the warp, right, is goes one direction and weft goes the other. And then the, the weft, right, goes up and under and over different amounts of threads, different things like that. So yeah, it's constantly being pulled. Like, no, be stronger. No, be looser in the sense of like create space if you're trying to do lace weaving. So it is, it's women like you need to be strong and put yourself out there, but don't be too strong because you may upset somebody else. It's like, oh my gosh, what mixed messages all the time for women. Right. Right. Yeah. Be part of the world, be out there Mm -hmm. earning, growing all those masculine elements. And also, you know, leave some of that, you know, girl power, but not girly girl. And yet, oh, you made that. That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. In some ways, that's the magic of being live. We get to be Mm -hmm. both and. Mm -hmm. And there's some points when it's like, I can't be all the things. And where does the tear in the fabric come in? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think again, because it's it goes back to right. We're talking about the both and the masculine and the feminine. It's like you want me to be this, but not that, because it's your own projections onto me. And I don't need to step into that. So let me be my own cloth. Let me be my own fiber. Let me stretch and grow in the ways that work for me. Mm-hmm. And that, again, the, the bigger piece of just that, the uniqueness is what makes the world, the loveliness. Mm-hmm. When we give one another that respect mm-hmm. of other respect of different respect of uniqueness, mm-hmm. because we accept ourselves in that fully and then accept others fully in that, but it's, it's a struggle, right? Mm -hmm. And that feels like in this story where it's hard to get a read on good or bad, it's like muddled. And I think, and very purposefully, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the only evil in this story is the expectations. Yes. When I first invited you on the podcast, I had a vision of another story, which is actually a pretty well-known story that was written down by Hans Christian Andersen. So we know it as the story of the wild swans. There's the, the princess who must weave cloaks made out of nettles in order to mm-hmm. save her brothers that have been turned into swans by the evil stepmother. And I was all set and I'm like, okay. And I you know, read the original and I read a couple pieces and I tried and I'm like, it was just a lump of like wet wool in my hands, you know? And I I panicked and I'm like, well, wait, I have a date with Nicole. Like I wanna, I wanna be doing podcasting right. I need to honor my schedule. And then I'm like, oh, oh, hmm. What if? So I started just, I just Googled Irish stories about weaving, because that's mm-hmm. where I was gonna know to begin. And that got me to this folklore collection. There's a website called duachis.ie, which is all it's like their folklore website from the the Irish government, dug deeper in who knows what sort of internet fairies were helping pull the threads and tug me along. And I found this, what's really a fairy tale that fits some forms we know. There's the three women, like, are they the fairy godmother? Are they Mm -hmm. not? And I loved it in the sense that it was, it was kind of a, it was like a homely little story that didn't really have a clearer through line of like, and then everything was wonderful because mm-hmm. the last line in the story as it was written was the prince saying, oh, well, I don't want her to do any of those things because she'll end up homely was pretty much the last line of it. Mm-hmm. And 
I wanted to imagine that the prince was not purely just looking for a beautiful bride. Maybe there was some good in him underneath. Mm-hmm. But in my construction of the story, I wanted to honor the telling and imagine. I imagine so John Joe McLaughlin was a real person. Annie McLaughlin, his daughter, was a real person. She wrote it all down in the book at school. But I was curious about who he was and who she was and why he would have told her this story because it seems like an interesting story for a father to tell a daughter. Mm -hmm. What would be the dynamic there if we're thinking about masculine and feminine, Mm -hmm. we're thinking about the strangeness of a story that doesn't really have a moral? Mm -hmm. Because was the girl victorious because she was useless? She was allowed to be useless? You know, There's so many like, huh, with this story. It kind of, it both opens up so much discussion and it makes you just kind of want to go for a long walk and wonder on it for a little while. Mm -hmm. You know, as you were saying that, what popped up into my mind too is the dad at the end, you know, asking her. And in a way it's like, yeah, if that wasn't the common thing to ask your daughter, who is she going to become or what's she going to do or whatever, it's like, Wow. So one, he saw her and it's that empowerment, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it it is. It's like all these, again, the, it's like, wow, what's, what is going on with this story? What is this really about? And what is, what was his message to her? Is it about empowerment or him just being curious or what? Right. And because there's so much weight in useful versus useless. Like, and we want to talk about judgment. I mean, that sounds like it right there, right? Uh And we can kind of elevate, oh, it's useless, but it's beautiful. Maybe like a, a, you know, a vase that's too fragile to hold flowers. Mm -hmm. But then there's lots of people in this world who, why would I bother? I could just, you know, use a jam jar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that struggle with useful versus useless, I think is every bit as much with us as it would have been in a farm in 1930s Ireland, because now it's that sense of, well, it's not about necessarily feeding the cows, but it's that sense of like, well, did you make money? Did mm-hmm. you, you know, call in listeners? Did it make an impact? Did you get likes from it? Mm-hmm. Right. Keep proving yourself that you're actually useful and not useless. Yeah. Who am I proving it to and why am I proving it to them? Right. So we've got proving. We've got expectation. We've got Mm -hmm. sticky bits in here, right? Mm -hmm. I would love to kind of shift the conversation a little bit over to you and your work and how you help people hold that and need to prove themselves and that need to meet expectation and how you help people find that, I don't know, is it a common ground? Is it a balance? Like where are you helping them? reach besides their true selves and their true expression. I'd love to hear more about that in your work. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it is fascinating. So, so often the women that I work with, you know, they are, they're totally driven, which is beautiful, but that driven is often rooted in messaging from such a young age of like getting the good grades, showing that you can be successful financially or that you've married well, or that your business is good or, or you know how to lead. And then they're constantly looking outside of themselves for that validation. They're looking for, am I making others happy? Because now I'm stuck in this rut of maybe I don't even like what I'm doing, or I don't like the direction I'm going in. And that 
feels somewhat powerless because that external expectation, the external proving myself. And when we pause and I challenge them, like on those belief systems, they start to really recognize like, oh, well, I'm, I'm still proving myself to invisible people that I don't even know who it is I'm proving myself to anymore. Mm-hmm. And when we reconnect to what, what are their dreams? Where do they want to go? What is it that really drives them? It starts to shift. It's like, no, no, no. I still like, you know, running my company or leading these people or doing these sort of things, but I don't need to keep looking outside for those expectations that actually aren't mine. Mm. And so it's like, observe what other people do, but it doesn't mean you got to take it on. Right. 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 And so then the empowerment comes back of sometimes sitting on the stool is the observation. Mm. That doesn't mean you're useless. It means you observe versus I've got to be involved in chaos or whatever. It's like, nope, I can observe things so I can start to formulate maybe the ways that what would work for me or doesn't, or what would work for the company or the work for my people type of thing or how to get them involved a little more if my voice isn't in it so I can hear them and then, you know, give the feedback later or whatever it may be. So it's, it's really helping. I think often women question their own inner stories of where it came from or what is still being told in their mind and starting to shift that. I love how even in what you're just saying, we kind of that invitation to shift what it means to sit on the stool. Mm-hmm. And I think it's often understood as, well, how do I look to other people when I'm just sitting here? Mm-hmm. And what happens if instead we say, here I am, centered, sovereign, in mm-hmm. my space, looking out to the world, and I will be able to make the next move from this stillness rather than being mm-hmm. paralyzed by the judgment and the way it's always been. Mm-hmm. And again, so many of the women that I work with are much more introverted and or highly sensitive. And the constant motion, the constant noise is challenging because mm-hmm. it really, it just impacts your internal system so much. Mm-hmm. And the quietness often is perceived as, well, you know, it's anxiety provoking or it's uncomfortable when we need to constantly move and be doing, mm-hmm. producing whatever. And it's like, not necessarily true that sometimes in that stillness, you can make a more informed decision by observing what is working and what is not. Yeah. So is that part of the reason why weaving and working with your hands has become such an important part of your life? Is this a newer thing that's taken on? Have you always been in this work? So there has always been some sort of fiber, some sort of creating since I've been young and weaving came in probably about now, seven, eight years ago in my life. And I just like, oh my gosh, look what you can do. And I think being creative as a therapist and as a coach, it's the mind creation and it's doing that deep work, which I absolutely love. But this is also like, I get to see the beginning, the middle and the end. And it's something that you can take on for years as well, but it's a tactile thing. And it's just a different form of creating. Mm. versus with words or with the mind. It's like, wow, I can actually touch it and feel it or wear it or display it. Yeah. So just a different element. 
I so appreciate that. And I found that in my own life as well, because, you know, my grandmother taught me to knit when I was maybe seven or eight years old. And mm-hmm. it was a kid, like I'd either like, I was always one of those kids who needed to multitask. So I'd like, I'd watch sitcoms in, in mm-hmm. the eighties and nineties and either play cards or knit all the time. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. that got left behind as it does because life gets busy and it's rare to bring your knitting needles to college, I suppose. And I feel like it's been one of those, like coming back to the needles has been like, these moments in life where I needed to find an oasis. And actually, Elizabeth DeRoche, who'll actually be in the episode just before you. So folks, if you haven't yet listened, listen back one, was my coach for a while. And she's very into fiber arts and handicrafts as well. She really got me going back to saying, you need to be weaving these ideas and starting to work them in with your hands. And it changed everything for me in a really profound way. And of course, it doesn't now seem an accident that then I named my podcast Not Work, which is, yes, it's a lot about the Celtic knot and the sense that it's a tangle and the sense that it's intricately designed. But I'm recognizing how very many of my stories want to be about fiber and about the women especially who wove those fates and made those designs, kept people warm, and also mm-hmm. made beautiful things. Yep. And, yeah. it, you know, it's funny as you're saying that for me, I, you know, I've joked with some of my friends for years now, I, I do just a little bit of tapestry. That's still a very new avenue for me. But with the weaving, it's like, it's usually a one continuous thread. And I'm like, well, it's like life, right? Mm. I mean, whether we're knitting or crocheting or we're doing needlework or weaving, it's like, we have this continuous thread in life. And sometimes it does break because of, so there's a shift and then you find a different color, you join again and you come back to that. And it is, I think just a beautiful metaphor of just like, oh yeah, even in cloth, even in, you know, the fiber arts, there's there's breaking and there's rejoining and reconnecting in so many levels. And the other aspect of this, which I was going in again, I kind of got to weave myself back because I got lost in my own little thoughts. The the process for me, whether it is knitting or it's weaving, that's very calming. It's very Mm -hmm. meditative because there's a rhythm in any of those things you do. And we know actually there's more research now going on about how, you know, the fiber arts can be a very calming. Cause again, it's tactile. So you got some groundedness with your hands. It's also helps you focus your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you can get really lost in the flow of whatever that is. And so if you're anxious, right, that's one of the things I talk with some of my clients, again, both clinically and coach wise, it's like, what do you, you know, do with that? And like, you're saying, even looking at that as a metaphor of weaving in the stories, weaving in the concepts mm-hmm. that it's, they're so, it's so rich right? Just, it's so rich in so many different ways. Yeah. Well, that in the sense that, you know, here we are in 2022 and we know what do our hands do the most of people can't Mm -hmm. see me, but I'm doing the thumb thing. Like Mm -hmm. I am sending a text right now in my brain and my thumbs are doing it. And I realized I was afraid to start knitting again because I was saying I had ruined my hands with all the phone. And it actually I felt like it truly healed me. I think it changed. I I had to put the phone down, that conscious thing, but I felt like, oh, there was just movement in a different way, just gave me some relief in my very tired, overworked thumbs that allowed me to be creative in another way. Because of course, I'm a writer. So, so much of what I'm even doing on the phone is actually composing. But what happens when you take that pressure off? 
find that stillness and say, I don't always have to be putting out this certain type of creativity that the world expects from me because that's what's useful because I am, you know, professional writer, entrepreneur, et cetera. No one's ever going to buy the cowl that I made, but my girlfriends certainly appreciate that more for their birthdays than saying, even than saying, would you like to listen to another podcast? (laughs) The people who love me most and that I love most, I find they actually benefit most from the work of my hands that keeps them cozy. Mm-hmm. And this, it, I feel like I'm, I would be remiss not to offer a phrase that I've actually offered several times in the podcast, but it's again and again so relevant. And I would love everyone to have this so firmly rooted in their minds mm-hmm. that there's actually an Irish phrase, fitcha which means interwoven or inextricably combined together. There's, I, I'm going to share a really beautiful article by an Irish writer named Mancon Magan, wrote, wrote this amazing several books on the living nature of the Irish language and how it's very much about the stuff of life itself. And it's not just for linguistic nerds, but he wrote a beautiful blog post for, I think it was making.ie, which is like the Handcrafters Association of Ireland, about all these different Irish words about weaving and handcraft and fiber arts that each one seems and is so metaphorical for what we are looking for, for ourselves in terms of creating our world, in terms of interrelationship. So fitchafuicha and that sense of interwoven is weaving in here again. So I'm just thank you for helping hold space for that. My favorite new phrase, which I hope is many not work storytelling podcast listeners' favorite new phrase. (laughs) So as we start to close out our conversation, I'd love to just, are there any other pieces of the story we want to call back to? Because there's so many complexities in there about, I don't know, the convoluted path of life. Is there any other pieces that we didn't touch on that you, that come to mind? Well, you know, I guess what's kind of coming up is when the three women showed up as they did, I think I will often say to the women that I work with from, this is for me too. It's remembering to trust the process, Mm. but also take your action steps, right? So if you need help, ask for the help. And I understand that maybe the young girl had not necessarily asked for these women to show up and they did, but it's also like trusting in the divine or trusting in that the universe is there for you to support that trusting in your own intuition to follow that Mm -hmm. because it often, the intuition for women gets poo-pooed and it's recognizing it's like, no, that's part of my soul speaking. And it's okay for me to listen to that, to follow that versus necessarily look outside of myself for all those answers or for people saying, I'm really good at this thing here. You ought to do this. And yet if it doesn't light you up, you don't need to. It's a choice. Right. Right. That idea of the universe is conspiring on our behalf, but Mm -hmm. we also are being asked to conspire with it and with the forces of nature and our own skills in order to really weave something beautiful Who knew we'd find this just looking through the archives? It's as if stories help us understand our modern lives. (laughs) Love it. Uh, Well, Nicole, I am so grateful to you for being on this journey with me. 
the network storytelling podcast journey is a different one than the typical. So just to, I appreciate you coming to sit with this story with me and to also add so many of your insights because they're so beautiful and invaluable. Well, I appreciate you having me on. It's been fun and it it's a different way to have like conversations for the podcast that I've done, that I do or others that I've been on. And I just love what you're doing with it because it is keeping stories alive and bringing them into our current life. It just, yeah, it's lovely. So thank oh, you. Thank you. So how can people find you? Do you have anything you want to share with our listeners about learning more about you and your work? If they go out to my coaching website, which is nicoleburgesscoaching.com, there's a link for what's your inner power as an animal. And it's, it's just kind of a fun little short little quiz that they can take. And then if they sign up for it, there's more goodies that they can get through the emails, but it's just fun to kind of see what you come up with and kind of what, what has been written underneath the animal, but it's for women to really continue to step into their power and be all of themselves. Mm, I love that. Obviously it's getting deep into the nature of the world and nature of themselves. That sounds kind of perfect for not work storytelling listeners. So, and online they can find you. They can go out to LinkedIn. They can go out to Facebook. I'm still on there, but I'm not as active on Instagram at this point. My weaving business may be one day, but it's not there yet either. <laughs> Fair enough. And of course, the platforms will keep moving and changing and holding us in different ways as we decide to hold them in different ways. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for being part of the show and for sharing this time with us. I deeply appreciate you. Thank you. Before we close today, I want to tell you about a new offering of mine that I think you'll love. As a not work listener, you know me as a storyteller. You probably have a good idea of why I call myself a word witch, too. In addition to crafting and sharing stories from the past, I also help folks uncover and heal their own stories. This work helps you to be fully present in the now and to create a more beautiful, connected future. I call this work story healing, and the new offering of one-to-one -one sessions is called Healing for Heroines. Healing for Heroines is a unique blend of energy medicine, intuitive guidance, and the language of archetypes and mythology to help you work through the tangles of life so you can weave a new story. Healing for Heroines isn't just for women. It's for non-binary folks and for anyone who wants to connect with the deep feminine wisdom within. Being a heroine is not just about being a hero in a dress. It's about deepening relationships, building community, and finding strength by asking for support. Learn more about Healing for Heroines over on my website, www.marisagowdy.com. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform, and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. Music on the show is by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. Find out about their music and shows at BillyAndBeth.com. Gratefully, 
I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.